0: Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff Ashley. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible and you want to turn, we will be in Psalm 115 as we just read. And as you turn there, I will tell you a story from my childhood. Have I run out of stories? Not quite yet. So this is uh, this story from whenever I was about two years old, and, uh, and so we were visiting some, uh, some relatives, and I got this really bad upper respiratory infection. And so my parents took me to the doctor, and they prescribed a cough medicine uh, for me. But unbeknownst to my parents and unbeknownst to myself, uh, I actually was allergic to one of the, uh, the drugs that's found within this uh, cough syrup that was uh, prescribed. I'm not going to tell you which drug, unless uh, Jared uh, tries to poison me in some grand coup or something like that. But uh, my particular allergic reaction to this was not to break out into hives or to go into anaphylactic shock or anything like that. But instead, my body was just flooded. With, uh, with adrenaline. Now, you wouldn't, maybe wouldn't know it uh, or wouldn't think it by looking at me today, but I was a very, very uh, hyper kid. So now my already really hyper two-year-old body was just riddled with excess uh, adrenaline. Imagine Zach after like a dozen Red Bulls and a handful of Skittles, and that's uh, kind of the idea there. And so what I would do is I would run as fast as I possibly could into a wall, I would just slam into the wall and then I would turn around and I would run into the other wall and slam into the other wall and so my mom would have to hold me but even though I was uh, only two years old, I could uh, wiggle out, I could kind of snake my way out of her arms and, uh, and so she would have to then uh, wrap her arms and her legs around me in order to keep me from running into a wall and getting a con- con- concussion or something uh, like that. And so for the, for the next 20 hours, my parents and my grandparents all took turns kind of holding me uh, down to keep me from uh, from doing this until I eventually just kind of passed out from uh, exhaustion. And then afterwards, went to the doctor and he's the one who said, okay, your son is allergic to uh, this particular uh, drug and said that eventually... I would either outgrow the allergy or if I ever uh, interacted with that particular drug uh, again that it would uh, kill me. And uh, so I'd go into cardiac arrest or something uh, like that. But I like to think of a third option, which is if two-year-old Jeff was able to like get away from my mom, then imagine what 42-year-old Jeff with this drug can do. And so I'd be like throwing tanks. I'd be like the Hulk or Thor or something like that. So now I just carry a vial of it in my pocket just in case there's ever a situation where I need to be a hero. I just pull it out and, uh, and do that. So I haven't had the medication since. I really don't know what it would do to me uh, today, although I did accidentally take a synthetic form of this particular drug a couple of years ago. For some reason, I didn't check the ingredients on something that I was, uh, was taking, and, uh, and so uh, I took the drug, and then I happened to look at the ingredients about a minute or so after I had taken it, and I found out that about 50% of the people who are allergic to the, uh, the real version of the drug have no adverse reaction whatsoever if you take the synthetic version, which is great news. And then I read that the other 50% have a much worse reaction and that's really bad news. So now I am kind of freaking out thinking I have just killed myself. And so I literally spend the next 30 minutes trying to gag myself in order uh, that I don't poison myself and, uh, and die. And then eventually, I, uh, I just lay in bed and, uh, and try to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. And so every single itch, every single tickle, everything like that is just exacerbated uh, in my mind. I tell you all of that simply to, uh, to make the point that there is often this profound difference between the actual thing and some thin- synthetic version uh, of, of that thing between the real thing and some sort of substitute synthetic version of that thing. And that's what our text is actually going to be about uh, this morning. That there is God, the God, the true God, the triune God, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. And then there are these little synthetic substitute gods. The problem is these gods are no gods. They're idols. And whereas the true uppercase God is all powerful, these lowercase gods are powerless they're futile, they're vain. And so it makes all the difference in the world in which one we actually hope and trust. It makes all the difference in the world whether you worship the true God or these false synthetic versions of God. So let's pray and then we'll dive in uh, together. Ask you just to pray for yourself first. (coughs) As you come in with... Uh, maybe uh, things that you're thinking about or worried about or stressed about or whatever it might be, that the Lord would give you uh, undivided, undistracted mind and attention and affection. And also for those around you, whether they're friends or family or strangers, that the Lord would give us a collective hunger for his word this morning. and then for me for faithfulness for boldness for honesty all those things father we're grateful that you have uh, loved us and We ask uh, this morning that you would help us because we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't understand your word. We can't apply your word. We can't uh, see in our own hearts where we might have idols. uh, We can't worship you rightly. There's just nothing that we can do apart from you, and yet you can do all things, and so we come to you when we ask for your help, And, uh, and so we ask it because you're a good father who gives good gifts, and so you've given us your scripture, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your son, so we pray in his name, amen. Well, let's uh, begin with Psalm 115, 1, which says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, uh, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So we open with this interesting phrase here. This is not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with this kind of language because we see it in a number of places throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Isaiah 48, 11. A similar sort of idea, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned, my glory I will not give to another. Or in Ezekiel 36, 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you Came. And so in these and similar uh, passages, we could uh, point out dozens of others. In, in these and similar passages, we see that unlike that Michael W. Smith song, God does not think of us above all. God's primary, God's ultimate purpose is not me, it's not you, it's not us collectively, but rather himself. God is foremost concerned with himself, with his own Glory. That's God's ultimate purpose in all things, is for the exaltation of His own name. As, uh, as Bavink writes, God reveals Himself for His own sake, to delight in the glorification of His own attributes. So, as we begin our text this morning, I want you to do a bit of a participatory thing. I want you to just think for a second about this question Why are you here? Not just why are you here uh, in this particular church, in this particular building, at this particular time, but more than that, why do you exist? What is your purpose? What is your telos? What is your goal? Why were you created? Why are you here? Imagine if you were to walk up and down the streets of McKinney this afternoon, and you just stopped random strangers, and you asked them this question. Why are you here? Why do you exist? What is your purpose? In today's political environment, you probably get slapped, but beyond that, you'd probably get a whole bunch of confused looks as if you're trying to sell them something. But if people were honest, if people were open and they actually answered the question, they might say that they're here to do good or to be good or to have fun or something like that. If you were to expand that survey beyond the borders of 21st century McKinney, you would get some other interesting answers. I think Zach has actually talked about some of these uh, before, uh, before. But for example, in, in, in various ancient Near Eastern myths, they believe that people exist in order to serve the gods. Why? So that the gods can rest. Or Aristotle, if you were to ask the philosopher Aristotle, he would say that you're here to develop excellence to the highest degree by practicing virtue and studying reason. Or Charles Darwin, if you ask him, why do you exist? He would have said to evolve into a species with a higher chance of survival. Or Karl Marx, he would say that you're here in order to maximize economic equality. Sigmund Freud, he would say that you're here to find socially acceptable ways to express your subconscious sexual desires. Nietzsche, who's a lot of fun at parties, he would say there is no objective meaning whatsoever. John Paul Sartre, he would say that that you're here to reject society's limits and truly to be free to do whatever you want. So you have answers all over the place in terms of why. We are here. But let me suggest a much better and much more biblical answer. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a document that was produced during the 17th century in order to help catechize believers in the biblical theology of the Reformation. And they say this in regards to man's purpose in life. They say man's chief end is this. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you want to know why you exist, why you're here, why you work, why you marry, why you have kids, why you go to church, why you eat, why you drink, why, whatever else you do, this is it. That your chief end is that you might glorify God and enjoy him forever, that you might behold and believe and magnify and exalt and exult in the glory of God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is what this psalm is about. It's about the glory of God, which is great. So I'm here, you're here for glory, and God is ultimately concerned more than anything else with his glory, but what is glory? Glory. Glory is one of these words that every Christian knows, and yet very few people, I think, could actually define. It's Christianese 101, right? It's like hallelujah or liturgy or raising Ebenezer or something like that. No one really knows what these words mean, and yet we use them all the time. So when I say the phrase God's glory, you might think of blinding light. You might think of burning flames and smoke and clouds, or you might picture something like the scene in Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with that, where the prophet sees the Lord and he's sitting on a throne high and lifted up, that the, 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 the train of his robe fills the temple. The house is filled with smoke. The temple trembles. The, it, it quakes as God begins to speak. Meanwhile, angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Or when I say glory, you might picture certain events like the redemption uh, from Israel or the plagues or the Red Sea or manna in the wilderness. Or you might think of the cross or the resurrection. And all of those things are snapshots. But glory isn't some attribute or some image or some event that we can kind of slice off and separate and put under a microscope. And Okay, that's God's glory. No, all of God is glorious. Glory is not just one attribute or one virtue among others, his love is a glorious love. His grace is a glorious grace. His justice is a glorious justice. His holiness is a glorious holiness, and so forth. So glory is this difficult concept to reduce down to a single phrase or definition when it comes to God. In fact, when you attempt to do that, it is a reduction, of the concept of glory, but let's try to do that. At least it will have some concept of what glory entails. So here's a definition that I think is helpful by a theologian named Christopher Morgan, and he says, the glory of God is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his, that's God's, many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. So this is what the author of this psalm is about. This is what God is about, and this is what you and I should be about. This is why we exist. This is why we are here, all right? So he says, not to us. Not to us, but to his name be glory. So the author is declaring, and we should be declaring, that our desire is not for God to glorify us. Why? Because we're not glorious. God is. So rather than us be glorified, the psalmist declares that he would magnify and exalt and demonstrate his own glory and uphold it for all to see that we might behold. And notice these attributes here, his steadfast love and faithfulness. We just mentioned before, all of God's attributes are glorious, but here he highlights in particular his steadfast love and faithfulness. Why is that? Because it's in those that we most uh, clearly see the fullness of the glory that is going to be uh, portrayed in this particular psalm. That is God's covenant with mankind. That this is going to be the ground for our confidence as we move forward in the psalm and ask God for help. When you're asking God for help, you're doing so in light of his steadfast love and faithfulness. As we'll see. But before we ask God to help, we have to desire that his glory and his renown would be his highest end. Because as we'll see, that's actually good news for us. Because as we'll see, as we move through the psalm, God can, uh, has two options. He can either give us himself, he who is everything and he can do everything, or he can turn you over to idols who are nothing and can do Nothing. And that's kind of the summary of Psalm 115. And so let's look at verses two and, uh, and three. It says, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So I'm gonna begin by just talking a little bit about my, uh, my children. So I love to play hide and go seek with my children uh, my one-year-old is just old enough to kind of begin to understand the concept and he'll, he, he loves to play with us. In fact, he sometimes loves to play even without us. He will sometimes decide to play all by himself. And what I mean by that is he'll just go into a dark room and he'll just sit there for 15 minutes on end while we're freaking out looking for him because we're not playing hide-and-go-seek, we're trying to go to dinner. And my son is just sitting there in the closet behind the clothes or whatever it might be, not making any noise whatsoever. Uh, ever. But my favorite thing that he does is that he'll go into his room and he'll grab his little blanket and he'll put it over his head and then he'll walk back into the living room and he just sits down in the middle of the room. He doesn't say anything. It's like a ghost, right? And he'll just stay there while we say, where's Canon? Over and over again. And that's what this text Reminds me of that image. The nations can't see God, so they assume He isn't really there. Where is their God? That's what they say in mockery. Now, in order to understand this mockery, this ridicule, this critique from the, the other nations, you need to recognize that the God of Israel is distinct from the gods of other nations in a lot of ways in infinite ways, in fact, but the one that the author highlights here is that the gods of the other nations are visible. In particular, they're manifest in statues and idols, which is why verses four through eight, as we'll see, will be about idols. So the nations that are surrounding Israel simply had no concept of a God who couldn't be pictured, who couldn't be represented visibly in some sense. Like my son thinking that we can't see him if he can't see us under the blanket. So the nations think that God must not be able to see them if they can't see him. So the nations begin to sarcastically mock God, making fun of this invisible God. Meanwhile, where's God? He's in the heavens. And what's he doing? He's doing all that he pleases, whatever he wants. Laugh all you want at God. Mock him, belittle him. You've accomplished absolutely nothing. You haven't robbed God of an ounce of glory. You cannot rob God of an ounce of glory. When the Bible says that we are to give glory to God, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have it otherwise. God is glorious whether you or I glorify him or not. We glorify God not to increase his glory, but rather to increase our joy and delight in him. It's kind of like having your toddler help you. I'll put help in uh, quotes. Help you clean the house. That is much less about that person actually helping you, and it's more instead about you helping them to learn a new skill or to spend time with mommy or daddy or whatever it might be. So God isn't absent. He's not non-existent. He is where we would expect him to be. He is in the heavens and he does, notice the language there, all that he pleases. Notice that note there of utter sovereignty that our God does all that he pleases. Not some, not most, but all. We see a similar idea expressed in a parallel psalm. You could go home today and read Psalm 135. It's a very similar psalm, uh, but it says in verses five through six, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. We see similar language in the New Testament. For example, Ephesians 1.11, in him, that's God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he does all things, he's pleased with all things, he works all things according to the counsel of his will will so I want you to think about that for a second think about the implications of that how can God do all things how can God do everything that he pleases if there's cancer and COVID and poverty and injustice and rape and murder and death and on and on we could go doesn't God want to stop these these things wouldn't that please God Isn't that what he wills, isn't that what he wants? Well, the answer is yes and no. In other words, God wills in one sense something that he doesn't will in another sense. If that's confusing to you, let me give you an example that even you can relate to, because you actually have this a similar sort of confusion when it comes to the topic of your will. Think about something that you do regularly that you don't really enjoy, you don't really like to do it in and of itself. That could be work out, it could be go to work if you hate your job, it could be get up early, it could be spank your kids, it could be pay your taxes, whatever it might be. Now if I were to ask you, why do you do those things if you don't want to do them, what would you say? Because even though you don't want to do them in one sense, you do want to do them in another sense. You don't want to go to work, but you want to not be fired even more you don't like taxes but I would imagine you probably don't like prison even less right and this is kind of analogous to the idea of the will of God so let's do a bit of theology around the concept of the will of God when it comes to the will of God God only has one will He doesn't have multiple wills. He has one will, but that one will is expressed in two ways. It's kind of like two sides to the same coin. So theologians distinguish in the will of God these two nuances. And typically they do so by calling one his revealed will, will, and the other his secret will, or his will of command versus his will of decree, or his moral will versus his sovereign will. And all of these are just different ways of expressing the idea that God wills things in one sense that he doesn't will in another. And if you want to see this most clearly in scripture, the best place to go is simply the death of Christ. Did God the Father want to crucify the Son? How would you answer that question? Does God the Father want to crucify the Son? If you're smart, if you're thinking about this, you would probably say, well, it all depends on what you mean by the word want. Does he delight in the act itself? Is he masochistic? Does he think, I just love that my beloved son is suffering? That makes me so happy. I love it when the people I love suffer. Is that what he's doing there? Of course not. And yet Isaiah says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So how does that make sense? Because of this distinction between revealed will and secret will, will of command versus will of decree and so forth, because even though the death of Christ was displeasing in one sense to God, it is pleasing in another sense. Why was it pleasing in this other sense? Because of all that it affected, because it accomplished salvation for mankind, it demonstrated his glory, and so forth. And if that still sounds somewhat confusing to you, here's a couple of things I want to do. One, encourage you to go back and listen to some of our theological equipping classes on sovereignty, because we talk about this and unpack it a lot more there. But here's the kind of the, the underarching sort of idea that I want you to grasp: that God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign even over evil and tragedy. But you have to understand that his disposition toward evil is different than his disposition toward good. God does good, God loves good. He never does evil. He doesn't love evil in and of itself, but he uses evil to accomplish good. And there's no greater evidence of that than the cross of Christ. If you struggle to understand how God can use evil to accomplish good, look no further than the cross and the death of Christ. The most evil act ever perpetrated, in one sense, is also the best act ever to be accomplished. In another sense, so in uh, in Psalm one fifteen here, God's omnipotence is on display in verses two through three that He does all that He pleases, and that will be important because it's going to be contrasted. God's omnipotence is contrasted with the idols' impotence in verses four through seven. So let's look at those verses. Their idols, that is, the idols of the nations, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, uh, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. So now you see this contrast here. You have God, you have Yahweh, he's unseen, and yet what does he do? He does whatever he wants. Meanwhile, the gods of the nations are seen in idols, but what do they do? Absolutely nothing. Notice that satire. Notice that irony here in the passage and this folly and futility of the idols. Idols are useless. They're worthless. They're senseless. And that word senseless is especially relevant because it has two different meanings. There's two different, two different ways that you could use the word senseless, and both of uh, which fit the context. First, that idolatry doesn't make sense, it's foolish. It accomplishes nothing because idols can accomplish nothing. Second, idols have no senses. They have mouths but they can't taste, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear. So let's talk about idols for a second. When we're reading the Old Testament, we need to understand that idols are a very physical thing. They're, they're talking about actual statues, actual uh, physical images and representations of so-called gods. So people would make them, they would craft them, they would fashion or form them somehow, and then they would bow down, to, uh, bow down to them. Which, by the way, the Jewish prophets would constantly mock. If you're not, uh, if you don't know that scripture contains mockery, just look at the way that the Jewish prophets, the prophets of Israel, would condemn idolatry because they're constantly ridiculing it scorning it and mocking it. They would say things like, is it not a little strange that you carved your own God? Who wears the pants in that relationship? Right? So that's what they're talking about there. And yet, we see that idolatry as a concept was universal. It was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. In fact, even though don't make idols was like number one rule in Israel, even the Israelites kept going back to idols. Why? Why was it? What was so attractive about them? Well, there's a number of things. One of those things is Unlike the true God, idols are rather predictable and controllable, right? That's the thing about a piece of wood or a statue of gold or something like that. I put it up on my mantle, I go to sleep. When I wake up in the morning, what do I expect? It's still there, right? It doesn't do anything. Not only that, but idols also look an awful lot like us. So idolatry is really a way of self-worship, It's a way that we worship and serve something that's a whole lot like ourselves. By that I mean, we've talked about this before, that all of existence, everything that exists can be distinguished into two categories. You have the creator, and then you have creation. You have the creator, and then you have creation. And so you need to know that worshiping anything under that line you see there, anything under that line is idolatry. It doesn't matter what you worship below the line. The enemy doesn't care what you worship below the line. It could be monkeys, it could be men, it could be women, it could be statues, it could be trees, or whatever it might be. As long as it's in the creation category, that's all that matters. This is what Romans 1 is all about. Romans 1, 22 through 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping Thing. So you see this subversion of the created order, right? God creates man to rule and reign over creation, but in sin there is this reversal, this subversion that man rebels against God and worships creation instead. Now as we mentioned, in the Old Testament, Whenever idols and idolatry is mentioned, that's a very physical thing. But in the New Testament, we see the concept of idolatry and and, and idols expanded to include even spiritual desires. So it's linked to things like sexual morality and covetousness in the New Testament. So let's talk a little bit about that. Because idolatry is another one of these Christianese terms that everyone knows, but no one can really define. So people tend to misuse it. So if you decide that you're going to buy a tankless water heater for your house... Someone might accuse you of having a comfort idol because you prefer to not take cold showers. Or those who prefer to never eat at Taco Bell are accused of having a food idol. When in reality, they don't, just want, to, they don't want to spend the next few hours just regretting their life choices, right? In other words, the way we talk about idolatry today, you would kind of think that anything you love or enjoy is an idol, But that's not really the way the Bible uses the term idolatry. That's not really what idolatry is. I love my wife and kids. In fact, I'm commanded to love my wife and kids, and God doesn't command me to do idolatry. So I love my wife and kids. That doesn't make them idols. Loving the cowboys doesn't mean that you suffer from sports idolatry. You suffer because you follow the cowboys, and that's inevitably going to be painful. But that doesn't mean you necessarily have some sort of idol there. Idolatry isn't loving things. In fact, you're supposed to love things and you're supposed to love things a whole lot. Idolatry is loving and enjoying things more than God or worshiping something other than God or trusting in some created thing to give what only the creator can give. So idols aren't just things that we make with our hands but things that we love with our hearts but not just love, love in a way that diminishes or displaces our love for God. And this is not just this ancient Jewish Old Testament problem. This is a mankind problem. Yes, you probably don't have an altar at home where you offer sacrifices to a statue, but idolatry is just as much a problem today as ever. As John Calvin wrote, in fact, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So, yes, not everything you love is an idol. But sin can creep into and corrupt your love such that it becomes idolatrous, which means that idolatry today is much harder to spot than it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you just look. There was a statue, that's an idol. But now idolatry can be hidden, even behind seemingly good things. So here's a helpful diagnostic question to help you identify any areas of idolatry in your own life. Does your love or enjoyment of something leads you to sin in some other way does your love or enjoyment of something lead you to sin in some other way for example sex is a good gift it's given by god in fact it's commanded if you're in a, a, a marital relationship but if your love for sex leads you to adultery or pornography that's certainly sin and it might reveal the presence of an idol Or money, again a good gift, but when your love for money leads you to covetousness or greed or a failure to exercise generosity and charity, that might indicate an idol. Or alcohol, another good gift. There's literally nothing at all wrong with an adult having a glass of wine or a margarita or something like that and yet if your love for alcohol leads you to drunkenness or to start to use alcohol to escape your responsibilities at home or work or something, that could be an idol likewise with sleep or work or whatever it might be. Again, an idol isn't just something you love, but something that you worship and serve to the neglect of God. What does this have to do with Psalm 115? In each of these cases, whether it's sleep or alcohol or money or sex or whatever it might be, in each of these cases, we see that idolatry makes certain promises. Idols promise joy. They promise hope. They promise significance. They promise identity. They promise value. But just like Old Testament idols, they don't have hands. They don't have eyes. They don't have ears. And thus they can never actually provide what they promise. They can never truly satisfy. Let's keep going because I want you to see something in verse 8 that I think is fascinating. Those who, uh, fascinating. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. About a decade ago, New Testament scholar G.K. Bill wrote a book titled, We Become What We Worship. And the thesis of the book was brilliant. It was profound, but it was simple. And it was this, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. And the book was based upon this little line in Psalm 115 and others like it. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Or Jeremiah 2.5, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And notice this, and went after worthlessness and became worthless. Second Kings 17.15, they went after idols and became false. Notice the language there of becoming. You ever notice yourself uh, being around a new group of friends or something like that, and you begin to take on certain mannerisms, whether it's uh, the, the way that they pronounce certain words or the phrases that they use or whatever it, uh, it might be. Why do different areas of the country speak the same language but nonetheless pronounce words differently, have different accents? Tim makes fun of me all the time because I'm from Southeast Texas. So I say words funny, at least to his ears, like naked or colt or something like that. Why is that? Because I was raised in Southeast Texas. Because of where I was raised. Because of a similar principle that we see in this text and others. In other words, people are kind of chameleons. They kind of blend in. We change with our surroundings. We change with our environment, with our context. And especially in relation to what we think about and look at and worship. That was Beale's point in his book, We Become What We Worship. And you see that in regards to sanctification, when it, when it comes to the, the topic of being conformed to the image of Christ, look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Notice what Paul just wrote. We are transformed by what? By seeing, by beholding, by beholding Christ we are becoming more like Christ. This is why if you really want to grow in holiness, don't just stare at your sin all the time. Instead, look to Christ. I have found in my own life that the seasons where I've seen the most victory over certain sins, whether that's lust or pride or fear or greed or whatever it might be, have not been the times where I was actually reading a book on lust or pride or fear or greed, but rather in seasons where I was simply contemplating the nature and character of God. As I was thinking more about grace, as I was thinking more about the gospel, as I was thinking more about Jesus, this is why Robert Murray McShane says, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So this principle of becoming by beholding has a really positive aspect in regards to sanctification, but it also has a negative in regards to idolatry, and that's what Psalm 115.8 is about. If you're conformed to the image of Christ by worshiping Him, then it also stands to reason, and the Bible is going to explicitly say, that you're conformed to the image of idols as you worship them. That's what the psalmist is saying here that there are consequences to our worship. That those who worship useless idols will themselves become useless. That if you worship senseless idols, you become senseless. That if you worship worthless idols, you become worthless. By the way, this is why if you run to pornography or drugs or money or something else as a source of identity and hope, in other words, as idols, that you're progressively changed by that. The transformation may be subtle, but it's real nonetheless. You become like what you worship, whether that's the true God or some synthetic sinful substitute. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. We won't be in this uh, passage very long. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So now we see this contrast. The nations look to their idols who can't help, but the people of God look to their God who is their help and their shield. So the psalmist encourages the people of God to cry out to God and to trust in God. Why? Because unlike the idols, God is able to hear and see and help. And not only that, but he's willing to help, as we'll see in the next passage, Psalm 115, verses 12 through 15, which says, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this is intended to provide the fuel for your prayer and praise. Why should you cry out to God? Why should you trust in God? Why should you pray to God? Why should you worship God? Not only can God help, but he will help. And this is particularly important to understand because Israel is probably experiencing some profound existential crisis at this point in redemptive history. The point in which this psalm is going to be Written. Most scholars think that it originated in the exilic period when Israel is exiled from the land, and yet the psalmist is confident. There's nothing about his circumstances that would explain his confidence. They're exiled, they're cut off from the promised land, they're under God's judgment. And yet, look at his attitude. He's certain of the blessing of Yahweh. Why is he certain? How can he be so certain? Let's do a bit of an, an experiment. I want you to raise your hand if you consider yourself to be an optimist. All right, some of you. Okay, now raise your hand if you consider yourself to be a pessimist. All right, all right. now raise your hand if you're just too shy to answer. All right, that's most people. All right, so it might be tempting to read this passage as if the psalmist, you see, he's an optimist, right? He's got the spiritual gift of optimism or something like that, but that's not at all what's happening. Instead, I would say the psalmist is actually a realist, but it just so happens that realism for the people of God is optimism. This isn't just wishful thinking. What he writes here in these verses isn't just wishful thinking, and it certainly isn't a reflection of the current circumstances. As we said, they are under exile. They're under God's judgment in this particular period of time. So it's not just wishful thinking It's not just looking around and saying, everything's good, so God must love me. So what is happening? Instead, it's this necessary implication of those attributes that we considered before, the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. How does the psalmist know? How does the psalmist know that God has remembered the people of God? How does the psalmist know that God cares? How does the psalmist know that God hears and that God will help Because he knows God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Because he knows that by showing steadfast love and faithfulness, God is most glorified. And given that it's God's ultimate desire to be glorified, this is actually good news for you and me, that God loves his glory is good news because his glory just so happens to overlap with the demonstration of his love and faithfulness. And who is his love and faithfulness directed toward? But to the people of God. So God's glory is a good thing that he's for his glory because his glory is manifest in showing steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, God's glory and your desire for joy and hope, your eternal good, all overlap. So this is the hope of the psalmist. And by the way, this is the same way that you overcome crises and trials in your own life. Not with just blind optimism. Just kind of white knuckle it think maybe it'll work out, maybe I've been good enough or smart enough and so gosh darn it, God really loves me or something like that. It's not blind optimism, but instead with this steady and studied faith in the character of God, the promises that he's made and the certainty of future grace. And Before we move on to the next section, I just wanna make note of two little interesting nuances that if you're just reading this quickly, you might skip over and uh, if I don't mention them, The first, I want you to just notice the phrase. I I mention this only because of our cultural context. Notice the phrase, both the small and the great here in the text. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. God doesn't just love the small, Or he doesn't just love the great. We've talked about this quite a bit over the past few weeks because this is very much against the grain of our current culture and even a lot of what we see in evangelical culture. But the Bible consistently portrays God as being impartial. God is not swayed by your gender, by your race, by your ethnicity, by your language, by your socioeconomic status, or whatever it is that we tend to value. God is impartial. And therefore justice is impartial and thus God's people should be impartial. That's just a side note there. Second, I want you to notice what it says about Yahweh, about the Lord God at the end of verse 15. It says he made heaven and earth. Which I think is a subtle jab, again, at the nations. Unlike the idols who are made, God is maker. That's the reason that he can help those whom he loves, because he's not something that is made or created, he is the creator. Let's keep going. Verses 16 through 18. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. I just want to focus on this one phrase here. What's the deal with this passage about the dead not praising the Lord? I thought that Christians believe in life after death. Well, we do. So what do we do with this? Well, if we're honest, most of us probably would just read this and skip over it. It's kind of like leg day at the gym, right? Everybody wants to do bench press. Somebody wants to do squats. We love to read Romans. We love Philippians. We love the Gospel of John. But no one has Psalm one fifteen seventeen on their bumper sticker. Although I think it'd be a good one. The dead don't praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in the silence. So don't tailgate me or you'll find out soon enough or something like that. (laughs) What does this reference to the dead not praising the Lord mean? Well, there's basically three options. Four, if you take the option that it's just a contradiction, uh, but there's three Christian options. The first one is that you can appeal to progressive revelation. You can say at this stage in redemptive history, when this Psalm was being written, things like resurrection and life after death hadn't been clearly revealed by God. Now, while it's definitely true that those doctrines become clearer in the New Testament, it's not true that they're entirely lacking in the Old Testament. In fact, you even see some hints in the Psalms of, uh, of the hope of, of life after death. So this doesn't seem like the best option. The second thing, though, that you could say is you could point to the resurrection and say that it's true the dead don't praise But praise the Lord, we don't remain dead. Instead, we are raised to new life. Again, that's also theologically true, but that doesn't seem to be the psalmist's point. What is his point? I think the best option seems to be that the psalmist isn't intending here to contrast life with the afterlife, but rather simply with what living bodies do versus what dead bodies do, right? Dead bodies don't do anything. They just be dead, Right, they don't actually do anything. They don't praise. They don't sing. They don't dance. Right around Halloween, you'll see like skeletons dancing and something like that. That doesn't happen. And uh, and so I think that the psalmist is just saying that while you're on this earth, while you're alive in this body, that you have a responsibility to worship. Whether you're in exile or in the promised land, you have not only the obligation but also the opportunity to worship the true God, because only He can help. If idols can't speak, surely they can't save. If they can't hear, then they can't hear your prayers or your worship or your songs. But God who has neither hands nor feet nor eyes nor ears can nonetheless see and hear and help. And because of his steadfast love and faithfulness, he will. That's what the psalm is about. So I want to begin to kind of land the plane with a reworking of verses 9 through 11 from kind of a New Testament Christianized sort of a way of reading it. So this is just the language of nine through 11, kind of moved into the present uh, where we are in light of the New Testament. And I would commend this to you. I would exhort this, uh, you in this way. I would encourage you, O oh, church, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. Oh Christian, trust in the triune God. He is your help and your shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in King Jesus. He is your help your shield, whatever crisis you're facing, whatever spiritual exile you're currently experiencing, whether there's marriage or parenting struggles or problems at work or problems with your health or the health of your child or another loved one or financial difficulties or struggles with some deep-seated sin, whatever it might be, God sees. He doesn't have eyes, but he sees. He doesn't have ears, but he hears. He doesn't have hands or feet, but he will help because he can do all things. And one day you'll know the fullness of that help when Christ returns and makes all things new. And until then we say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that you're not uh, an, an image made by human hands, And thus you're not limited by our imagination, you're not limited by our efficacy, that indeed you are sovereign over all things, and that you do whatever you please, that you're sovereign over good and also over evil. And so when you use evil, you always use it for good, and I pray that you would help us to believe that, Lord. Pray that you'd help us to root out of our life places where we're truly idolatrous, not rooting out of our life just things that we love as good gifts from you. Pray that you'd help us to just simply be faithful. We might love and trust you, the true God, and rid our life of synthetic substitutes. Pray these things because you're good and you do good, and so we ask in Christ's name, Amen.